Good morning, church. My name is Black, for those who are joining us for the first time. Um, we're going to have our Bible reading shortly, uh, but before we get there, if you have a small child with you, a baby who gives you any trouble throughout the sermon, uh, we have a cry room uh, to my left, your right. Um, it will be of great help if you would step in there. There's ushers at the back if you uh, lost and trying to find where the cry room is. And I think it will be great if we would keep our phones on, on silent um, as we get into the sermon this morning. Thank you. Our Bible reading will be taken from Matthew 20, uh, verses 20 till 28. Matthew 20, verses 20 till 28. Good morning, family. Okay, we're reading this morning, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at, the, at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you uh, again for that Bible reading. Uh, there's leaflets on our chairs. Uh, that's where we will be getting our reading for this morning. That will be of great help if you would keep those leaflets with you. Um, we are in week two of a very exciting series that we started last week called Anthem of the Ages. Um, and what we want to do with this series is really have an important conversation. Uh, it's a conversation that affects all of us. It's a conversation we believe as a church uh, all of us should be having at some point in our lives. Uh, it is a heavy conversation. It's a conversation about Jesus. It's a conversation about our eternity. Um, and so we thought what are probably some of the easy ways to broach this subject um, of, of Jesus. And we found that music tends to give us uh, common ground. Uh, music, uh, if uh, is done right, those artists become the ears, the eyes, and the mouthpiece of our culture to communicate some of our deepest needs, our deepest longings, um, instead of interrupting a session at a braai and I just step in and I'm like, yo, listen, Jesus saved you. Uh, that would be awkward. Uh, so we thought that uh, having music as a way to start this conversation would probably be more helpful. So if you are new, joining us for the first time, you've been invited here by somebody, uh, or you've been trying to investigate the Christian faith, you haven't been in church for a long time and you want to come back, uh, or you want to just find out what this Jesus thing, this Bible thing, this church thing is all about, uh, this series is for you. Um, this sermon today is for you. 
And so I encourage you, say all of that to encourage you, that even after this formal introduction to this conversation, please continue having this very important and weighty conversation about Jesus, about your life, about your soul. So whoever invited you, please continue chatting to them. After this sermon, you can come chat to me if you want to continue having this conversation. If you look around and you see people who are very comfortable, right? They live here. They're part of this family. Go have this conversation with them. I encourage you to do that. So I'm going to pray and ask God to help us with that, and then we'll uh, get stuck into our sermon. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that your word is active. It's living. Thank you that your word is relevant. It's not just ink on paper. Your word was relevant to generations a thousand years ago. It's relevant to us today. It will be relevant a thousand years after we have left. The word is powerful. The word speaks to our deepest needs and longings. And so, as your word is open this morning, Jesus, I pray that you would speak to those hearts that desperately need to hear from you, hearts that need to be changed. In your wonderful and precious name, I pray. Amen. I'm going to begin off with a quote. It will be on our screen, and it reads, When someone comes along and says something like, I am a God, everybody says, Who does he think he is? I just told you who I thought I was. A God. I just told you. That's who I think I am. End of quote. If you don't know who said that, well, it's the man, the myth, the legend, the icon himself, Mr. Kanye West, a.k.a. Yeezy, a.k.a. Jesus, a.k.a. first name basis only, yay. <laughs> A lot is said about Kanye West, and with such arrogance, or some might even uh, call this bravery, uh, it would only make sense that Kanye West would make a song called Power. But again, nothing is ever simple when it comes to Kanye West. If you open the dictionary and go down to the word complex, you will see a very colorful picture of Kanye West's face. He is very complicated and very complex. In fact, to understand why Kanye West created the song called Power, we need to dial back a bit. We need to go back a couple of steps, four steps to be precise. Step number one, 2005, after Hurricane Katrina. Kanye West and Mike Myers are on national TV on NBC, and they're raising money for hurricane relief. And in true Kanye West fashion, he goes off script and says what George Bush would consider years later as the worst point or the lowest point of his presidency. And that says a lot for a president who took his country to war, and by the time he left office, he left the American economy in shambles. And yet, he considers what Kanye West said in 2005 the lowest point of his entire presidency. So what did Kanye West say? Well, in his response to the lack of quick responsiveness by the Bush administration and their lack of empathy towards the victims of Hurricane Katrina, on national TV, which became global head news the following morning, Kanye West said, George Bush does not care about black people. Step two. American professor Donda C. West, who's also the chair of the Chicago University Departments of English, Communication, Media, and Theater, dies from surgery complications. If you don't know who Donda C. West is, she was mentor, confidant, biggest fan, 
true friend, and most importantly, Kanye West's mother. When Donda C. West died, Kanye West was never, ever the same. Step three. A year later, while he's still mourning the death of his mother, in 2008, Alexis Pfeiffer breaks off their engagement. They've been together since 2002. And so yet Kanye West is left vulnerable and exposed. Step four. If you've never listened to a Kanye West song ever, trust me, you know what happened in 2009. The VMA Awards, Taylor Swift wins Best Female Video, jumps on stage as she's about to give her acceptance speech. Again, in true Kanye West fashion, jumps on stage, takes the mic and says, Taylor, I am happy for you and I'm going to let you finish. Turns around, looks at Beyonce and says, but Beyonce had the best video of all time. Of all time, shrugs his shoulders, gives the mics back to Taylor Swift and gets off stage. At that point, any human with any ounce of morality hated Kanye West. Every single corner of society gave him backlash. So much so that even then, President Barack Obama went on national TV and called him a punk. He actually used more colorful language that I would not repeat behind this pulpit. But Kanye West, was disillusioned by the political power structures of his time, and he believes that the corruption behind these political power structures is the racism that he experiences in his community or in his culture. Secondly, the wind has been taken out of his lungs when the death of his mother happens, who was his anchor. He's left exposed thirdly by the breakup of his engagement, and fourthly, where he thinks that he can find space in as a creative, the music industry, he sees that even then, the power is corrupted there, where artists like him, who put in enough work and are actually gifted and creative, don't get recognized or get rewarded at all. Instead, cheap bubblegum art gets promoted and sent to the front because that has a lot of financial backup. If you're sitting here and you're a Taylor Swift fan, you probably hate me because I just called Taylor Swift cheap bubblegum art. But that's another conversation for another day. <laughs> so, so this is where Kanye West is. He's very disillusioned. In fact, he gets off the radar. Uh, we are told later on that he headed off to Japan, spent some time in Rome, and later went to Hawaii and spent close to a year working on his fifth studio album. My beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. My opinion, I believe that was his magnum opus. And Power happens to be the lead single of that album. If you're a nerd and a fan of Kanye West like myself, let me uh, intrigue you. Uh, it took Kanye West 5,000 hours to make Power, uh, which is 200 days, roughly six months. And so as we listen to the song Power, you can hear the anger in that music. You can hear the frustration. This is a human who's trying to claw his way back up into reality, and he wants to make his stamp in the world, and he wants to say, I am here. No one can ignore me. So we're going to play a snippet of Power, and hopefully you can hear some of these themes that I'm speaking about. Century, doing something mean to it, do it better than anybody you ever seen. Do it, screams from the haters, got a nice ring to it. I guess every superhero need his theme music. No one man should have all that power. 
thinking I just count the hours Stop tripping, I'm tripping off the power The system broken, the school's closed, the prison's open We ain't got nothing to lose, everybody we rolling uh, Everybody we rolling With some light-skinned girls and some jelly rollers In this white man world, we the ones chosen So good night, cool world, I see you in the morning Of our age. Well, it's currently sitting at 138 million views on YouTube. Some of the top universities in America use power as their entry song for their basketball and football teams. Many film productions and TV productions have used power as their theme song. And many other corporations have used power as part of their advertising campaign. Corporations such as American Airlines, BBC One, Xbox, and Ford Motors when they released the new Mustang. Because that is definitely a powerful car. Uh, <laughs> so what is the message of power? Um, we have to step a little bit back to understand what the message of power is. Um, there's a key sample in the song. For those who don't know what a sample is, it's a piece of music that's taken from one song and it's used in the production of a new song. So the sample that Kanye West uses here is from a 1968 band called King Crimson. They released a song called 21st Century Schizoid Man. That's the sample that you keep on hearing over and over at the beginning of the song, before the chorus, after the chorus, even at the end of the song. What was the message of 21st Century Schizoid Man? Well, King Crimson was actually criticizing the Johnson administration for the war in Vietnam. But not only that, they predicted that there will be a generation that is apathetic and a generation that's detached from reality because of modern day warfare, but because of the consumerism and materialism that had plagued the 60s and any other generation that came after that subsequently. And so here's Kanye West in his genius, if I have to give him that much. He not only samples the song, but he transports the entire context of 21st century schizoid man, transports it into power, and basically says that he's the one who fulfills the prophecy. He lives in that 21st century that, 20, that uh, King Crimson predicted, and he's going to be the Messiah to rescue this generation that's apathetic. He's the Messiah that's going to rescue this generation that's consumed by all this materialism. And so look at what Kanye says. You can flip the page that you have there. At the beginning in the intro, he says, I am living in that 21st century. Which 21st century? The one that King Crimson predicted. In the first verse, he paints this grim picture of how political structures and subsequently the culture that he finds himself in is upside down. He says that the schools are closed, the prisons are open. Why? Because the youth is so consumed by materialism, so much so that they would even go down the rabbit hole of crime to find the things that they desire. But he says, before you quickly judge the youth, it's actually the government's fault. They're the ones who are closing down the school. They're the ones who are opening up the prisons. 
Why? In that same verse it says, remember, this is a white man's world, 2005, where George Bush doesn't care about black people. In fact, in the last verse, he takes these two figures, Colin Powell, who's a, uh, an American political figure, and Austin Powers, and he contrasts them together. One represents politics and the other represents celebrity culture. And he says, what messages are these figures giving to the nation? All of the stuff that they're saying is actually lost in translation. We don't know who's who. We give the politicians our power, they abuse it and they corrupt it and they oppress us. We give the celebrities our adoration and our attention and yet clearly they don't have any power to impact any meaningful change in our lives. Hence the chorus, don't give this power to no one man. Because if you do that, that man will corrupt this power, that man will abuse you, that man will make sure that he tramples all over you. But here's the twist. This is Kanye West we're speaking about again. He says, well, I acknowledge that you guys are creatures of worship. I acknowledge that you guys are creatures that will give adoration and attention anyway. So if you're going to worship somebody, if you're going to give somebody attention, give it to me. I'm the only man who deserves this power. We see that in the intro when he says he's doing it better than anybody else who's ever, we've ever seen do it. Kanye West has been quoted many times in various interviews where he's compared himself to Jesus, to Shakespeare, to Warpool, to Nike, to Google, and he's saying in power, none of those icons are doing this being an icon thing better than I'm doing it. Goes on to say in the intro, all this criticism and this hate that you're giving me, well, that's actually confirmation that you're still worshiping me and giving me your attention. After all, every superhero needs the theme music. So bring on the hate. It just confirms that I am doing what I'm, I set out to do, which is to save this generation. If you don't hate me or criticize me, then that means I'm not doing anything any, at all. But in verses 2, he goes straight for our neck. He goes straight for a jugular and he says he embodies the characteristic of the egotistic. Why? Because he is so gifted. And what he's saying there is calling all of us to excuse his arrogance for being a genius. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you think Kanye is boastful, Kanye is prideful, Kanye is arrogant, he would turn around and say, my friend, you don't know what a genius looks like. This is genius status. And again, we can say all that we want to say about Kanye West Church. But here's one thing I'll give him. This man is an honest sinner. He is an honest sinner, and I do not say that as a good thing. I say that because at least you know what you're dealing with. Because as we sit around in this room, most of us would point fingers at power structures. Most of us would criticize authority. Most of us will, will point a finger at any form of authority. But most of us would not be quick to admit that behind our finger pointing and criticism is our own desire for power. I'm criticizing you because if I had that power, guess what? I would do something different with it. Whatever power is to you, whether it's economic power, it's political power, whether it's social power, power at work, power in your family, educational power, even religious power, Behind our finger pointing and our criticism, if we're honest, for most of us, is our own desire 
for power. But here's the thing, church, the idea of power as the world sees it is a trap. It's a trap. Because how does the world define power? Well, for power to exist or power to be expressed, there has to be somebody or some group at the top. And there has to be then, subsequently, another person or another group at the bottom. Because how else will we see that power exists if those power dynamics are not there? But guess what happens to the guy at the bottom? Guess what happens to the group at the bottom? Eventually, we get tired. Eventually, we rise up and we go for the necks of those who are at the top. And then we subvert them, oppress them, and the cycle just keeps on going. They get tired, they get to the top, they oppress the one at the top, they, they go to the bottom, and the cycle keeps on going over and over, generation after generation, millennia after millennia. This vicious cycle of domination and oppression. The idea of power as the world has it, the idea of power as some of us have it in our hearts as we sit here this morning, is a trap. But is this how God sees power? Is this how God uses power? If we flip our little leaflets there, we, we find a, a passage from Matthew chapter 20. For those who are new, this is Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, and he writes an account uh, of Jesus' life. But he's writing at a time when the Israelites, God's people, uh, the people of the culture that Jesus was born into was under the colonizing power of the Romans. So the Romans were the ruling force and they were oppressing Jesus and his people. And so when they read their Bible, which is our current Old Testament that we have in our hands, when they read that page after page, promise after promise, prophecy after promise, God said that there will come this Messiah. Messiah means God's chosen king who will rescue them from their oppression, who will rescue them from their bondage. And so Matthew tells us that in steps Jesus, Jesus comes and proclaims himself as this Messiah who's come to rescue people from their oppression and their bondage. In fact, in verses 28, if you read there with me, Jesus calls himself this title, the Son of Man. His title is also seen in the book of Daniel. What do we know about the Son of Man? Well, it's this character who is, in every respect, fully human. But he also has divine attributes or qualities about him. So he's fully human, 100% human, but he's also 100% God. Very complicated subject. We can talk about that over coffee that you're buying. But uh, what is Matthew saying here? Is saying that if Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, what is his idea then of power? In verses 17 and 19, that's not on your handout. It's in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 20. Jesus has actually given his disciples what the idea of power is in his kingdom. And Jesus says, I am going to my greatness. I am going to my glory. I'm going to be inaugurated as the king of the universe. But guess what? The path to get there is death. The path to go there is suffering. The path to get there is the crucifixion. And so the idea of power in God's kingdom is not like the world's power or the idea that we hold in our hearts. In fact, this is a very counterintuitive way of seeing what power is. In your leaflets there in verses 26, 25, and 27, Jesus then re-emphasizes what he means by what he's told them in verses 17 till 19. He says in verses 20, if you want to have power in any sphere, any kind of power, 
How does it look like in God's kingdom? Well, you do not lord it over people. You do not use power to dominate people. Power in God's kingdom is not there for the sake of dominating people. In verses 26, he drives the knife even deeper and he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, well, you have to be a servant. You have to, in everything that you do, seek the welfare of others before your own. If you think that's not deep enough, he goes to verses 27 and he says, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, you want to have power, you need to be a slave. Count yourself less than you count others. Champion others. Champion the cause of others. Promote others. Praise God for what he's doing in this world through other people's life. If you want to have power in the kingdom of God, be a slave, be a servant. You count yourself lost. You count yourself less. But as we read in verses 20 till 23, his disciples just did not get it. How do we know that they didn't get it from the conversation that they're having when Jesus was speaking about him being inaugurated as the king of the universe or going into his glory or going into his kingdom? All the disciples heard was glory, power, and kingdom, and they thought to themselves, we want a piece of that pie. How do we know it? Verses 20 till 23, you see John and James send their mother to go speak to Jesus. The mother is even so respectful in verses 20, she comes kneeling before Jesus. How do we know that the brothers sent the mother? Well, because when Jesus responds to her, he actually turns to the brothers and asks them, if you want to be part of my kingdom and sit on my left or right, are you guys willing to drink of the cup that is waiting for me? The cup of death, the cup of suffering, he says that to them in verses 20. And they respond, yeah. We'll drink of that cup. But fast forward a couple of chapters later, when Jesus hangs on the cross and he drinks of that cup, where are these punks? They all ran away. They're all in hiding. None of them are prepared to drink the cup now when it's time to show up. But here's the crazy thing. When we think about what's actually happening here, history tells us that their mother was actually the sister of Mary. Jesus' mother. So this was Jesus' aunt. And these were Jesus' cousins. And so basically, they thought to themselves, it's going down. Hey, my old lady, mother, go talk to your, your nephew there. She goes and she kneels. My boys are very focused, energetic, tenderpreneurs. They want the best contracts. They want to be ministers of donkeys and architecture or carpentry, whatever ministry was there in Galilee. But verse 24, church, we all hate corruption, amen. The disciples, or 12 of them, the two go to Jesus, the other 10 are seeing this happen. I guess what they say in verses 24, read with me there. And when the ten heard, heard it, what was happening, they were uh, indignant at the two brothers. And so the word indignant there has connotations that tell us or suggest that there's two things happening here. 
On the surface level, there seems to be an appearance of anger at this request. They can't believe that these other two would ask Jesus this. They can't believe that there's this apparent corruption and nepotism happening right before them. But in actual fact, the second thing that's happening underneath is what's the truth? Underneath this apparently noble response was the ten's own desire for power. They were actually annoyed that the brothers beat them to ask Jesus. When they heard Jesus speak about this thing, they all conspired, all 12 of them, and they were like, yeah, but we're getting in, we're getting all these positions. And then the two brothers were like, nah, listen, we are blood. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, we're getting these positions, we're getting these tenders, right? And so now they were actually annoyed that the brothers beat them before they could ask. You see, the ten are exactly like Kanye West. The ten are exactly like us. We speak against corrupt power or any form of authority, but in actual fact, we want that power ourselves. Amen, some sinners out there. Amen. Not the only one here. <laughs> but here's the thing, church. If that is true of us, if that is true, then we will inevitably be as corrupt as what we hate and criticize. If it's true that behind our criticism is our own desire for power, inevitably, very shortly, you will be as corrupt as the very thing you hate and criticize. You know why? Because the very thing that operates behind corrupt power is operating in your heart this morning. That thing is called sin. That thing is more powerful than you. That thing is more powerful than corrupt power structures. Sin is an ugly thing. We're born into sin. We're born slaves to sin. Sin controls us, even as, as babies. When Ruth stood here and she was like, I was trying to be perfect, but I don't know why. Ruth, you're a sinner. <laughs> That's why. Sin is the very thing that makes babies scream, mine for everything. I'm like, my dog, you're one year old. Right? You've never done anything with your life. <laughs> never earned, don't have a job, and yet you want to scream, everything is mine. That's exactly what sin does. It gives us this Machiavellian impulse to want to grab at power by any means necessary. If a one-year-old had the strength of a 35-year-old man, he would kill you. <laughs> Mine. But church, we could look at political structures and power out there. Let's bring it home. Sin corrupts you so much that you believe that you have power to control your own life. You've been invited here this morning, and disclaimer, I'm about to ruin your Sunday lunch or the ride back home, but hey, we're here now, right? Uh, but you believe that you have enough power to control your own life, so much so that when everybody tells you about Jesus, tells you about God and how he created everything and how he's powerful and how he's the grand architect of the universe, you think to yourself, if I would believe that this guy doesn't exist, or if I live as though he doesn't exist, guess what? That will give me power to do whatever I want to do in my life without any consequences. 
And I'm not undermining your struggle of why you believe God does not exist. But I can guarantee you this. Power is one of the reasons why you want to believe that God doesn't exist because you could live however you want to live with no consequences. But again, as I look around the room, we all have our Sunday best. We are polite South Africans who will never admit or deny God outrightly because we went to church with our grandmothers. Amen. <laughs> you know what they say? <laughs> A black atheist is an atheist until their grandmother visits. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> But you don't outrightly deny that God exists. You don't. Right? Especially when you want money. It's January. Came to church to pray to God because you want that dough. When you drive home back from work at night and it's late and you want security and safety, you'll pray to God. But when it comes to my sex life, that's mine, God. When it comes to my relationship, that's mine, God. You don't have power here. When it comes to how I raise my kids, that's mine. You don't have power, yeah? When it comes to how I identify myself, God, you don't have power. This is my domain. And so the person who invited you, or if you've just come to church this week because you're just trying to investigate this Christian faith, God brought you in here to hear this this morning. God is the one who has control over our lives. See, church, the Israelites thought that the Romans were their enemies. And in some sense, that's true. The Romans oppressed them and subjugated them. But when Jesus steps in as the Messiah, God's chosen king to rescue them from their oppression, Jesus is saying to both Romans and both Israelites, sin has both of you by the throat. And only I have power to defeat sin. You think the Romans are your enemies? You're going to fight over them, subdue them, right? They're going to live under your power for however long. They're going to come back again because they'll be frustrated, take you down again, and this pattern is going to go over and over again. Guess who wins? Sin. Sin wins. You don't win. Sin is more powerful than you. Sin is stronger than you. Sin deludes you. Sin blinds you. In actual fact, the more we steal, we destroy we become corrupt, we dominate. What we're actually doing or what sin is pushing us to do is to declare war against God. If you oppress people who are made in the image of God, you are declaring war with God himself. If you destroy God's creation, you are declaring war with God himself. That's what sin is ultimately, a declaration of war against the God of the universe. You probably thought to yourself, I was just, you know, a chochonyana, just a prayanyana, cold drink. That's war that's declared against the king of the universe. Every time we live lives that's contrary to what God has called us to live like, you are declaring war with the God of the universe. And so Jesus steps in for you. Jesus says, see, all this, this insult, all these blasphemies and profanities, all this evil, all this arrogance, this ignorance, all this pushing away of God, I will take it on my behalf. So when God looks at me, it will seem as though I am the one who declared war with him and not you. So God will crush me for your declaration of war. God will punish me for your declaration of war. I will take it upon myself so that you are saved. 
You've heard Christians use this word, saved, I'm saved. Highly favored and blessed and saved. That's what we mean. But Jesus has taken on my declaration of war against the God of the universe upon himself so I can be set free. That's what good news is. It's not the Bible your grandmother left you that you're not reading. But that's what good news is. That Jesus takes on your declaration of war and makes peace between you and God. See, this is what power looks like, church, in God's eyes. A king who dies for villains. A hero who dies for his enemies. A judge who does prison time for criminals. That's what power looks like in God's eyes. That's what power looks like in God's kingdom. See, Jesus in his death gives you life. Jesus binds himself so that you can be set free from the clutches of sin. Jesus, who is the true light, allows you to cover him with all the darkness that you put out in the world so that he can make you true light. That's what good news is. That's good news for you this morning. You thought somebody invited you here? Jay, oh, they care for you. They love you. They want you to hear this good news for you. That's why Jesus is great. That's why Jesus is God's power. So this morning, why won't you surrender to him? You've been fighting. You've been resisting. You didn't even want to come today and they bribed you with a bribe. That's not going to happen. Because <laughs> they're going to get home and say, hey, I'm tired. Here are some hot dogs. Anyway, <laughs> but you here, don't waste this time. You thought you coming to a church to see a bunch of crazy Christians. You came to meet the God of the universe. You came to be told about the good news that has ever, ever landed on the ears of humans in the entire history of the universe. Jesus, taking on your declaration of war upon himself so God crushes him and not you so that you are saved. Surrender your life today. Church, if we flip our little um, handouts, I have to be fair to Kanye West. At the end of the song, Kanye West admits that he cannot himself handle this power. At the end in the intro, if you see there, he says, I am jumping out the window. I'm letting everything go. And he repeats that line over and over and over again. He's come to the end of himself. He cannot take on this power that he has called all of us to give him. No human can handle that power except the one and only perfect human, Jesus Christ, who is fully human and fully God. So I am imploring you this morning, do not jump out of the window. Don't take on all this power upon yourself, so much so that later on it crushes you and you just want to jump out of the window and end it all. Surrender today. Give your life to Jesus today. Amen. I'm going to close off with a story just to land this point for us. Some of us might know Louis XIV. Uh, he was the, the king of France, the only monarch to rule the longest in the history of modern-day Europe. He sat on the throne for 72 years. 
Louis built France to be what it is today, a superpower. He consolidated the strongest military might of his day, making France a force to be reckoned with. In fact, he also consolidated all the religions because he didn't want his kingdom to be divided. Louis was known by many names. Louis the Great, the Great Monarch, but one that's relevant for us this morning, he was called the Sun King. Because he believed that everybody else's life orbits around him and he was the very source that gives life to all his people. So much so that Louis wrote out how his whole funeral would take place. He wrote down what people would say about him at his own funeral. He wrote down what he wants at the funeral and one specific thing that Louis wanted was a golden coffin. And so they placed the golden coffin in 1715, September, when he died, in the middle of the church. All the lights were turned off. And he requested that there'll be one candle above his golden coffin. So when the light from the candle hits the gold, it reflects around the room, still saying, even in my death, I am your son, God. I still give you light. And so John Baptiste who was the minister, was about to give the sermon that day. In a quiet cathedral, walks up to the coffin and snuffs the candle. And in a dark church, he says, only God is great. And so I pray that God has snuffed out your candle today so that you can know that only God is great. And that you would give your life to him today. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray for us. There will be a prayer at the back on screen. If you are sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, you've heard God speak to you. And you want to let go of your own power. We want to live under God's power. I'm going to recite this prayer, and then we will recite it together. Um, you can recite it in the quietness of your own hearts. If this is you today, you want to lower your weapons, and you want to trust God for what he's done for you through Jesus. So listen to this prayer. It says, Jesus, indeed, no one man can have all power except you and you alone. This morning, I acknowledge that you are God's power. I confess that my sin has been a declaration of war against God the Father. And this morning, I am letting go of my sin. Thank you, Jesus. By your own life and body, you have made peace between God and myself. Thank you for defeating my real enemy, sin. Thank you for opening up my eyes to your truth. Please help me let go of control in my own life so that I might completely surrender to you. If that's you, again, in the quietness of your own heart, you can pray this, and I'll lead, I'll lead you in that. Jesus, indeed, no one man can have all power except you and you alone. This morning, I acknowledge that you are God's power. I confess 
that my sin has been a declaration of war against God the Father. And this morning, I am letting go of my sin. Thank you, Jesus, by your own life and body. You have made peace between God and myself. Thank you for defeating my real sin, my real enemy, sin. Thank you for opening up my eyes to your truth. Please help me let go of control in my own life so that I might completely surrender to you. Amen. Amen. Church, we're going to stand and sing a song that helps us reflect on this truth that we've heard from God's word today. So when we stand...